Hello, humans. Welcome back to my series for The Meaning of Christmas. So this is part three in my series. And part one, I addressed the criticism about Christmas being pagan. In part two, we learned that God tabernacled in a sukkah, a greater and more perfect temple not made by human hands. Christmas is all about the incarnation, the birth of the Savior, Christ Jesus. However, if the eternal word entered into time within the world and tabernacled within the divinely designed body of Jesus, what did that mean for the world? So, on the last day of Sukkot, Hashanah Rabbah, Jesus publicly declared himself to be the living water and the Messiah, but he didn't stop there. It is written in John 8, 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Hmm. So, just as Jesus' declaration to be the living water correlated with Sukkot, well, Jesus' bold declaration to be the light, that also correlated with the Festival of Tabernacles. According to the Mishnah, Sukkah 5, 2-3, at the temple... There were golden menorahs with golden bowls at the top of each. There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit by the light of the festivities. So, during Christmas season, Christians, and even non-Christians, will often decorate their homes with lights and even use candles. But, history reveals that even the faithful ones of ancient Judaism, they used light in their celebration via a menorah. But what is a menorah? Well, it's a uniquely designed lampstand. Well, why did they use it? Well, a lampstand, principally the seven-branched lampstand, was constructed initially for use in the tabernacle, as we see in Exodus chapter 25. And it was placed in front of the inner curtain that shielded the Ark of the Covenant. And so, Scripture informs us that the lampstand, though it has seven branches, was one solid piece of pure gold. Now, throughout the book of Exodus, within the construction instructions, things were often purified such as the gold for the table of presents, or in one solid piece, such as the lampstand. Now, think. Think about this. Is the church of purity and in unity? Is the church one body with many parts functioning toward the same goal? Is Christ the head and the center stem? in Exodus 25:37, the seven lamps for the lampstand were to be set so that they would project their light forward. If we are part of the one unified body, are we shining our light forward? Whomever or whatever we reflect will determine our direction and our projected path. Look, Proverbs 27:19 says, "As in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. 
Now, for this reason, Jesus said that out from the heart, the, the center, the core of a person, will flow his or her true nature. Also, the menorah has the decorations of an almond tree, and as a tree in the midst of the place where God makes his presence known to humans, is to remind Israel of the Garden of Eden. Thus, the menorah was to stay lit continually, 24 hours a day, and never allowed to be extinguished. The eternal flame symbolized God's omnipresence. However, in order to keep the menorah lit continually, the priest had to ensure that its oil never ran out. Now, eventually, a nine-branched menorah called the Chanukiah, it became the central symbol of the Jewish festival Hanukkah. So, what is Hanukkah and what is the significance of having nine lamps rather than seven? Well, let us go to John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. Examine what is written. It says, At that time of the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple of the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Whoa. So, the people who wanted Jesus to tell them plainly if he was the Messiah, got extremely angry after he told them plainly that he is, and they wanted to stone him to death, as we see in the next verse. Now, understand this, they didn't desire to stone him to death because he claimed to be the Messiah. No, rather, it was because he made himself equal with God, as we see in a few verses later, John 10:33. But we also see this back in John 5:18. That's the reason they wanted to stone him to death, because he made himself equal with God. Well, that and in this passage I just read, he also told them, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So, Jesus rejected them. However, listen, it's important to understand that his rejection of them was based on their rejection of him. Now, Jesus he spoke those particular words during winter, as it's written in, in Scripture, at the Feast of Dedication. Well, the Feast of Dedication is also known as Hanukkah. So, what is that? Well, the word Hanukkah, it simply means dedication or consecration. But that leads us to a curious question. What was being dedicated or consecrated? Well, it was the Temple of God. But, the festival was due to a past event when it had been rededicated and re-consecrated. Hmm. Well, that leads us to another curious question. 
why would the temple have been re-consecrated and rededicated unless it had been deconsecrated and defiled? Oh, now we get to the story. So, more than a century before the incarnation, there existed a viciously evil Seleucid king of Syria named Antiochus IV. And after his expulsion from Egypt, he invaded Jerusalem to extend his power by forcing the Jews to Hellenize. So essentially, he was enforcing the superior Greek culture on them. And some Jews defected from the purity of Judaism and they adopted Hellenism, uh, which revolved around humanism that glorified human pleasure and self-centered desires. So in short, they compromised, which allowed the enemy to infiltrate, inundate, indoctrinate, and then dominate. Eventually, an ultimatum was given to all the Jews. The entire Jewish community must give up its distinctive customs, the Shabbat, uh, kosher laws, circumcision, etc., uh, or die. In fact, history reveals that Antiochus and his soldiers murdered over 80,000 Jews. Now, further, to prove his point and attempt to assert his superiority, Antiochus desecrated the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus, uh, whose image coincidentally resembled Antiochus, sacrificing an unclean pig on the altar, and pouring the blood on the scripture scrolls, and even insisting on being called Epiphanes, uh, which means God manifest. This blatant blasphemy sparked a major military and social conflict which exploded into what is now known as the Maccabean Revolt. Pious, faithful Jews went to war to protect their essential Judaism against the danger of Hellenizing Jews whose uh, collaboration with Hellenistic rulers eventually brought about laws against being Jewish that living out the Torah was illegal. So in other words, the government of that day tried to usurp God's authority and override God's word. Antiochus had conducted a reign of terror for three years until his defeat by the Maccabees, which is from an Aramaic word, machabah, meaning hammer. Um, and a man named Judah, or sometimes pronounced Judas, uh, he was a son of the Hasmonean priest Mattathias, and he was known as the leader of this revolt, and he was given the nickname Maccabeus, uh, presumably because of his effectiveness in battle. Now, just as Peter and the other apostles would later say in the New Testament, in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Well, the Maccabees had declared the same. And against all odds, Judah and everyone else who joined him prevailed over Antiochus IV in 164 BC. Um, and this then led them to the reconsecration and the rededication of the temple on the 25th of their ninth month, which is Kislev, 
which is now celebrated as Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. Therefore, Hanukkah commemorates this awesome victory over an evil tyrant uh, who was a type of the future Antichrist who is to come. And based on the deuterocanonical account of the cleansing of the temple in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, especially 1st Maccabees 4, um, Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days, beginning at sundown on the 25th of Kislev, which it usually falls in our December. So, for example, um, this year in 2022, it will begin on December 19th. Next year, uh, in 2023, it will begin on December 8th. However, in 2024, it will begin on December 26th, which is only a day apart from December 25th, which is the date Christians typically celebrate Christmas, and this is perhaps why gift-giving eventually became a tradition during Hanukkah, because they're so closely related, and gifts is what ended up happening. Anyway, now, the traditional reason for the festival lasting eight days is given in the Babylonian Talmud, where the rabbis explain that after the Maccabees reclaimed the temple, they desired to light the eternal flame, the symbol of God's presence. However, they found only one day's worth of undefiled oil. And now, they knew that it would take them about eight days in order to produce new, pure oil. Therefore, if they lit the eternal flame, well, they would run out of their current oil supply before they were able to refill it from their next oil supply. However, they determined that it would be best to light the eternal flame immediately as a symbol of God's victory so that they can praise the Lord. And what followed their faith-filled decision was nothing less than a miracle of God uh, reminiscent of the widow's oil in 2 Kings chapter 4. One day's worth of oil lasted them for eight days, ensuring that the eternal flame of God's presence did not go out. Hence, the main observance for this holiday revolves around lighting this Hanukkah, this nine-branch menorah. Now, Jewish families, they progressively light nightly the special menorah with eight candles, and they're using this ninth center candle, known as the shamash, to light all the other ones. And the shamash means the attendant or the servant. And this is why, also, Hanukkah is also known as the festival of lights. <laughs> now, in the Jewish publication, Hanukkah, a writer said, then the light is kindled to give inspiration for the light of Messiah must burn brightly in our hearts. So, looking back now on John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30, I find it interesting that those particular Jews who desired to stone Jesus to death did in fact have a light of some sort burning within them for the Messiah. However, when they encountered the true Messiah, they rejected him because he did not conform to their expectations, which were formed from religious traditions. 
They claimed that they were children of God and even had hoped for the Messiah, yet Jesus told them they were not true believers and they were not his sheep. Now that is a sobering and scary thought that someone can claim to be a child of God and yet still be rejected by the Lord. Now for this reason, Jesus had warned people quite a few times that in the end, he might tell them he never knew them. Well, why? Because the people to whom he will say this are evildoers, those who do not do the Father's will. I mean, after all, why would they desire to kill Jesus when he continually healed people? He was doing good. And so, although those particular Jews had a light within them, It was the light from an all-consuming fire of prideful religious hypocrisy that burned genuine relationship to ashes. But that's not the light children of God are supposed to shine. Now, as with all the biblical holy days, there are spiritual lessons to be learned. A few of the lessons to be learned from Hanukkah include remaining faithful to the Lord, being courageous, and shining the light of the Lord. But perhaps the most vital lesson is seen in its very name. Now, this the festival can, commemorates a time after a great tribulation and an abomination of desolation when the true worship of God was restored in Jerusalem just as it will be in the future. Now, Now, that ancient temple no longer exists today, but there is a good reason for that. Each follower of Jesus is the holy temple where the Spirit dwells. But, too often, believers endanger the purity of this sacred temple by allowing idolatry into their lives, just as Antiochus did centuries ago. And so, we should take seriously Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, when he said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In Exodus chapter 37, within the construction instructions for the sanctuary, A theme of purity is quite evident because we glorify God in the holy temple. Holiness is pure, and that's why the Ark of the Covenant, Table of Presents, Lampstand, and Incense Altar, they needed to possess purity. So, ponder on purity. I mean, it is written in Matthew 5.8 that those whose thoughts are pure are blessed and they will see God. Purity is commendable. What person commends another for his or her lack of purity? What element is desired to be impure? It should be our goal to remove impurities. Silver or gold or even diamonds for that matter would not be as valuable or desirable as they are uh, without the process that removes impurities. Well, why, why is this? Purity is beautiful. 
Now, isn't a diamond desired when it meets the four C's during inspection? The inspector examines the diamond for the cut, clarity, color, the carrot, and those four C's determine the quality. And it is written in Proverbs 25.4 that if we remove impurities from the silver, the silversmith can craft a fine chalice. Now ponder on this. Pure silver has the highest electrical and thermal conductivity of all metals. In fact, pure silver defines conductivity. All other metals are compared to it. Now this means that conductivity is reliable. So people desire to use pure silver on circuit boards when they need the circuit board to work right the first time and every time. Remove impurities from your life so that you can be conducive to God's will for your life and the lives of others. To be as pure as possible, we need only to be in alignment with God's will, which can be discerned by knowing God's word. And the better you are aligned with God's will, the more pure you become in your sanctification process. Therefore, your conductivity grows greater and greater. Those who follow God's word are better equipped to receive God's directions via the Holy Spirit. Those who are better equipped to receive God's directions are less likely to get lost. Now, Paul, speaking to believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, said, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, it is written in Ecclesiastes 10.1 that dead flies and perfume make it stink and a little foolishness decomposes much wisdom. Look, the moral of the story is clear. The bad contaminates what is good. Think about it. A person desires his or her drinking water to be pure, right? I mean, would you purchase purified water and then pour dirt in it right before you drink it? Would you put moldy bread in with fresh baked bread? Good and bad don't belong together. Good that is surrounded by bad stands a great chance of becoming bad. Now, imagine purified water as the good in your life. Now imagine a single drop of food coloring as something that is bad. Well, if you were to drip food coloring into that purified water, that food coloring would spread and soon the water would no longer be clear. The bad contaminates the good, whether that involves your sex life, what you eat, your impure thoughts that you allow in your mind. Is your holy temple infested with mold? What impurities do you need to remove from your life, your holy temple today? Purity does not matter um, to those who don't obey God, but purity most certainly does matter to the holy God, but the implications here are spiritual because unholiness affects our relationship with the Lord and with others. However, listen, we, we must make this distinction here. There is a big difference between a prideful, pious purity that's based on religious works that claims a holier-than-thou status and a humble-at-heart purity which acknowledges that we've only been cleansed because of the blood of Christ Jesus. 
The former is religion, the latter is relationship. The religious person will claim that his or her tabernacle is holy because of what he or she has done or abstained from doing out from his or her own strength and greatness. However, the one who has a genuine relationship with the Lord will proclaim that his or her tabernacle is holy because of Christ's finished works and the power of the Spirit who now tabernacles within him or her. And because the temple is holy, idolatry has no place in our lives. Now for this reason, the Maccabees purged the temple from evil, and Jesus later cleansed the temple because of unholy practices within. Both of the acts of cleansings, they were done due to them having a genuine relationship with God and refusing to compromise what would take away from God's holiness. Now, examine both the seven-branched menorah and the nine-branched Hanukkah. The branches shoot out from the center stem. If we don't extend from the center, the source, the head, we have no light. And of course, Jesus is the center. Jesus is the head. Examine what is written in John 15, verses 1 to 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So, in John 8:12, Jesus said that He is the light of the world. In John 9, 5, Jesus said, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But Jesus knew that he was going to ascend into heaven, and that's why he told his disciples and us that we are now the light of the world. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so, again, examine the nine-branched chamuchiah, that nine-branched menorah. The center, the ninth candle, is the one that gives light to the other eight candles. Now, I believe we can learn a lot if we examine the shamash, that ninth candle. Again, shamash means attendant or servant. Remember what the Lord said. Jesus taught us that the greatest shall be the servant of all. Also, he said, the servant is not greater than his or her master. And Jesus said, He came to be the suffering servant as an example that we should do likewise. Therefore, Hanukkah symbolizes how the Lord who served us gave us light. And because the design of the lampstand is to project light forward and project light for everyone in darkness so that they will be able to see Christians are to shine their light for everyone in the darkness so that they may see our good works and glorify God. But what kind of good works should those in the darkness be seen from us, the light bearers? Well, in John 13, 13 to 15, Jesus said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So, listen, whether we are ensuring justice is done, showing compassion, forgiving others, Uh, feeding the hungry, inviting strangers into our homes, providing clothing to those in need or visiting people in the hospital or prison. We are truly children of God if we are not only loving God with all our hearts, souls, and minds, but also loving others as we would love ourselves. Our light, though it is fire, should not burn others, but provide comfort and warmth. Our light, though it is pure, should not blind others, but provide vision and guide people to the straight and narrow path which leads to the door who is Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 1-8 says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality of with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in order to shine the light of Christ, we must first and foremost be in Christ and branch out from Christ. Then, after he gives us light, we must shine the light of loving servitude. And in order to shine continually, our oil must never run out. The oil is faith, and the Holy Spirit continually produces this oil. And finally, uh, another tradition of Hanukkah that has since developed from the Maccabean Revolt is playing games with a dreidel, or a four-sided top. Each face of the dreidel is marked with one of four Hebrew letters, Nun, Gimel, He, and Shin, uh, representing the phrase Neskadal Hayasham, which means a great miracle happened there. Well, however, in Israel, the letter Shin is replaced with the letter Pe for the Hebrew word meaning here. So a great miracle happened here in Israel. So in conclusion, there is a connection between Judaism and Christianity, between Hanukkah and Christmas. Hanukkah recalls a military victory for Israel, oil provided for them by God, the light of the Lord overcoming the darkness and true worship being restored. The entire festival of lights is a reminder of those who courageously remain faithful to God even in the face of persecution. However, it's also a reminder of God's miracles and His love for us. If the miracle of Christmas was the birth of Christ, then the miracle of Hanukkah enabled the miracle of Christmas. For without the Jewish people, there would be no Messiah or Christ, and hence no salvation. But out from God's sovereignty and unfailing love, a Savior was born. And so, this Christmas, may we all remember that the greatest gift we could ever receive was born in a feeding trough for animals beneath temporary shelter, a socha, outside, because the world didn't have room for him. But what about now? What about you? Do you have room for the Savior? He wants to give you the light of life.